Whilst growing up, I absolutely loved sports. I loved all kinds of sports. I am a wrestler. I played football. I loved everything about participating in those endeavors, in those extracurricular activities. I loved the locker room. I, I loved going to the weight room. I loved even watching film of the opposing team and trying to learn some different techniques and advantages that I could gain from those film sessions. I loved going to games and playing in games. I loved practice. I loved the tournaments and being there all stinking weekend. I loved everything about it all the way up until I was a sophomore in college. Right, that was the year that I, I broke my foot and I had to start riding around campus on one of those little scooter things because I couldn't use both of my feet. At that point, everything changed for me. And I hated going to football practice. I hated going to weights. I hated the games. I hated watching film. I dreaded every single second of it. I did not want to want to be there. I didn't want to participate. By the end of the year, I was ready to call it quits. I was over. I wasn't really going to be playing anymore because of the injury. And so I told my coach, I said, at the end of the season, I was done. I'm just burnt out. And here's where I think most of those feelings stem from. It's from this. It's from motivation. Right? It's from motivation. I, I no longer had the, the, the motivation to go to those weight sessions or go to practice or to watch film because there was no reason to do those things. Right? What was the, the motivation to, to stay in shape if I wasn't going to play? What was the, the motivation to watch game film if I wasn't going to play against that offense? What was the motivation? That was the question floating around in my head. And then something happened. It was on my honeymoon, actually. Not that, right? <laughs> right? But I got a call on my honeymoon from one of my coaches, and Christina, she was not impressed. <laughs> and so I, I did not answer the phone, but he kept calling and calling and calling. So after a couple of those unanswered calls, I finally picked up, and my coach was asking me to not be done, to come back and to join the team for the final season. And not because my foot had gotten better or was going to heal and I was going to be a starter. No, my, my foot is still still injured to this day. And if I want to gross Christina out, uh, one of the screws kind of bent and it's like popping on my foot. And so I show it to her and chase her around. Like, All right, so, so it's still not healed. My coach was calling me to, to be what he called the spiritual captain uh, of the team. Well, well now my, my motives, they changed a little. That. Right? And my, my purpose was back. My, my heart was back in the game. My, my motives were back. And to be honest, it's, uh, to zoom out, that's why coaches are important, right? They put it in perspective anyways. Right? right? But, but it's, 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 it's better suited me and who I was. And I was back with a greater purpose, a real purpose. Right? Motive or motivation is such a powerful thing, isn't it? I mean, every movie you have ever watched shows its importance. Just think about it, right? They hear all this story, they're living a pretty normal life, and then all of a sudden, some new motivation comes into their life. A girl, the boy, 
right? Uh, surviving a zombie apocalypse. Whatever it is, that change of motivation changes the whole trajectory of that character's life. Right? They go on to be a guide, they make some choices, they overcome, right? Motivation is the thing that every coach in all of history was hoping to remind their players of in that great pregame speech or halftime speech that they gave in the locker room. For example, the most famous football coach of all time was a man named Bear Bryant. Here's the guy I was going to say, Vince Lombardi or, or, or Nick Saban or Vilichek, but it's Bear Bryant. He once said to, this, to his players at Alabama, he once said this, what are we doing here? What's he looking for when he says that? Motivation. Motivation. What's our motive? What's our motivation? Tell me why you're here. If you're not here to win a national championship, you're in the wrong place. Right? And he goes on, he says, because there, there are going to be days when you think you've got no more to give. And this, this coach was hard. He was a tough coach. There are going to be days when you think you have no more to give, and you're going to give plenty more. You're going to have pride in class. You're going to be very special. You're going to win the national championship for Alabama. Right? Barry Bryant, because uh, he was such a great coach, he was also a great motivator. He knew that if he could just get his players to buy into this motivation of winning a national championship, notice it wasn't for them, but it was for the whole state, right? For the whole school. He made it a big purpose, a big motivation, right? Motive is important. I mean, continue to think about it, right? Even comedians talk about it. One of my, my favorite comedians is John Panay. Has anyone ever heard John Panay? Oh, you guys are missing out. Right? Rest his soul. Like, he's passed away, but he is hilarious. Go to YouTube after church. Not right now. John Panay, right? He once did a sketch about hating. Uh, to work out. If you saw him, you'd say, that makes sense. Right? And one of, one of the, the only motivation that he could muster up in his life to work out was the fact that when he got on that, that, that elliptical machine, he had to repeat something over and over in his head, and it was this, raviolis and a nap, raviolis and a nap. That's all he could do. He muster up the motivation to work out. He had to think about that post-workout meal. Raviolis and a nap. Motivation. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And here's the thing. It's powerful. Right? And so I ask us today, Foundry Church, what is our motivation? What compels you to get out of bed in the morning? Is it just a desire not to be late? Is it the simple desire just to get a head start on the day or to have some quiet time by yourself before your coworkers get there? Is it a desire to provide for your family? Is that what gets you out of bed in the morning? Is it a desire to get away from your family for the rest of the day? Is that what compels you? Is that what drives you? What, what compels you to, to eat? Think of it like that. Is it, is it the hunger? Is it taste? Or the price you paid for the meal? Is it to lose weight? Is it to bulk up? Is it because you're bored? Right? right? When, you, when you go to church, what compels you 
to go and to gather at the altar each Sunday to, to worship God, to take communion, to hear his word. What compels you? Is it God? Is it your spouse saying, he's in the car? Right? Is it the need for social interaction or recognition or, or service? Is it, is it guilt? What is it? Is it the desire to worship God? Right, so here's the question, and every aspect of life, what is your why? What is your why? What is the thing that keeps you going? What is the thing that helps you do the right thing? What is the thing that tells you what is right? What's worth building your life on? What is worth forging your life on? Right, so, so that is the onion that we're going to peel today. Right? Especially for those of us who feel like maybe right now is the season of life that is the toughest we've ever been in. Or maybe we just feel like, man, uh, I've always felt like there was an out, or there was a way, there was a light at the end of the tunnel. Man, I don't know, my life, ooh, right? Just a dark tunnel. Or it's heavy. It may not be the hardest part of your life, but it's heavy. That's what we're going to look at right now. What is your why? And as always, we're going to find our answer in our Bibles. Right? God's, God's word to us, his disciples, who are charged with going and making disciples. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and that's what we're going to look at today. In Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to resume our look at the Sermon on the Mountain. And uh, for those of you who were not here last week, we just started a, a series of sermons on Jesus' most famous and longest uninterrupted speech sermon of all time. And he called it the Sermon on the Mount. All right, it's Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And we're looking at some of those amazing, awesome, just mic drop moments. Right? Moments where he's like, boom, I'm out. Learn that. Instill that in your blood. Right? In moments where he's like, information is just stupid without transformation. Right? Where he's like, you gotta go deeper. If you're gonna follow after me, if you're gonna forge your life on me, ooh, put your work boots on. Right? Because it's not about you anymore. Right? And these are these mighty drop moments. These are the moments where people who were listening, during this time, they would have started elbowing each other. They would have started looking around at each other. If there were elders, they would have started saying, like, looking at each other and being like, we've got to have a meeting at the church. This guy's crazy. Right? It's these moments. Right? And they're thinking, can this guy be serious? And he was. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is mic drop after major mic drop after major mic drop. So to help us with our question this week, we're, we're going to pick up just after last week's section of Scripture, in which, if you haven't read all of that yet, I encourage you to do so. But this week, let's start with Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. If you don't have a Bible, use the Bibles that are in the seats in front of you. You can take those Bibles with you. Uh, they're free for you to have to use the tape. All right, just the reference is going to be on the screen, but I want you to turn there, either in your Bible or in your phone, the Bible app is a great app, but I want you to read it for yourself. You know where it is. 
This is, this is Jesus' longest uninterrupted speech discourse to us disciples. Right, so, so Matthew chapter 5, first book of the New Testament, he starts in verse 17 and he says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not, I love this, not an iota. We should bring that back to the Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it all is accomplished. And therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Keep your finger right there. All right, we're going to stop here. <laughs> Because this, this, is, this is big, right? And we may read this and we think, okay, what's the big deal, Jesus? Right? But to the disciples who were listening to the sermon, they were like, whoa, mic drop. Serious statement. Controversial statement. Right? So Jesus, he just got finished teaching them how to be good disciples, followers, how to truly be happy. Right, by, by seeking to serve, right? How to be blessed, and all of that it flies in, flies in the face of the Old Testament law, right? There, there were rules developed in the Old Testament by God the Father to protect and to guide his people, and there were a lot of rules, right? Let's just be honest, right? And Jesus says in verse 17, those were good laws, those he says are good rules to follow. He said, I'm not here to get rid of those. I'm here to fulfill those. I'm here to fulfill those laws. There was a purpose to those rules. And he says, guess what? I'm it. I'm the purpose. He, he is not saying that the, the rules from the Old Testament were bad. They weren't. They protected the people of God. And they disciplined the people of God. Let's be honest, we all need discipline. They brought the people of God closer to Him. But here Jesus says, I am showing you what it means to really follow those laws. Right? Jesus makes it clear that He has authority. He has the authority. He's like your Ohio State sweatshirt, where they say the Ohio State, right? They say, I have the authority. <laughs> I have the authority apart from the law. I'm above the law, you say, but not in contradiction to the law. So think of it like this. He's saying this, right? Jesus adds nothing to the law except one thing that no man had ever added to the law. What did we just celebrate at communion? His perfect life. Perfect obedience. That's what he adds. To the law. Jesus says the rules, hey, they're good, but let me show you what it means to live by the letter of the law. Let me show you the law come to life. And that is why Jesus is referred to as the Word. The Word of God, the revelation of God made flesh. 
right? The, the word, that's, that's what capital letter W, being the Ten Commandments and the old law of Moses, he was the living law of God. Right? But then he takes it one step further in verse 20. What does he say? Just, I'm going to read it again. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. I mean, think about that, right? After 5 verse 20, right? The Pharisees, they were just Jewish leaders and teachers of the time. And they had taken the laws of the Old Testament, and rather than and then just following them, right, they, they would make up rules to better follow the rules. And before we give them a hard time, we would all do the same thing, right? And we would want to make sure we're following them, right? And so we would do the same thing. If the, the law of the Old Testament were guardrails on the highway of life for God's people, the Pharisees, had they started to put up barricades, uh, in the side of the guardrails, like those big cement things. And then it, it just kind of kept going from there. And they were like, okay, let's put, let's put some traffic cones in here too, just because. And then let's add those flashing lights and the cones and all this stuff, right? Until all those left was just a single lane of traffic on a highway with threats of, of tickets. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> right? They, they would fast twice a week. And they would tithe off of everything, uh, like the, the garden herbs, right? They, they would pause for prayer three times a day. They, listen, the Pharisees have developed a system of 613 laws that had to be followed weekly. And, and then Jesus tells the disciples, right, the people that are listening to this sermon on the side of this mountain, he says, you've got to be more righteous than that. What? true righteousness 
is a heart focused on the right person. So when Jesus says this, this is he, he's not setting an impossible standard for us to follow. He's saying, if you will come to me and trust in me and, never, and, and receive the power of the Holy Spirit, which he goes on later in Matthew and in the beginning of the new of the, of the church, if you receive the power of the Holy Spirit, then you will be able to live this way. Not perfectly, but powerfully in your life as a disciple who makes disciples, as someone who's forging their life on God is going to change the world. So it comes down to this. Look at it like this. And this is not a verse of hopelessness. It is an invitation to a new, adventurous, abundant relationship with God. Just like we sing about, it's a life that portrays the only thing that's going to defeat darkness in our world, and that's Jesus. It's a life that lets him shine. It's a life that says, I'm going to shrink my ego, my pride. I'm going to let him live and do his thing in and through and over me. Right? One that's not centered around rule following. And again, we're not giving the Pharisees a bad rap here. They might have added too many track cones. <laughs> rules are important. But it's not about just following the rules to follow the rules, right? It's about a changed relationship, a changed heart, a life that is forged and rooted not on something or our ability to follow the rules. It's on our God. The God who's above and through all and in all. So look at it like this. We humans keep wanting to do something, and God keeps wanting us to become something. Right? He, he wants us to become like his son. That's what he wants. He wants us to become like his son, Jesus. And the only way to do that is to be around him, get to know him, and read the things he says, right? to pray to him. To, to be a disciple who makes disciples to change the world, to live a forged life. I, I recently read a quote this week from Charles Spurgeon, and someone asked Spurgeon, he said, hey Spurgeon, if I were to only do one thing, all right, first of all, you know, there's a question about being stupid. Right? He's trying to find, the guy is trying to find the line, right? He says, if I were only able to do one thing, what is it, should I pray, or should I read the Bible? And Spurgeon said, hey, idiot. No, he said that. He said, what's more important, exhaling or inhaling? And so this is what he's saying. He said, if you want to know me, get to know me. See my word. See, see, see what he's doing and how he lived. Right? He's saying, be a disciple. Practice your spiritual disciplines. Right? You know, there's, there's just this sweet story that I love to tell about Rose Edmondson. She's not here today, she's sick. All right, but it illustrates this. Actually, there's two stories. All right, she's really living a forged life. She's living this out. Right, the first was way back when, way back when, it's before COVID, I think. So dinosaurs were probably still moving. <laughs> but Christina was leading worship for a period of time here. And on Sunday, I, I looked over, I, I saw Rose, she was, she was standing next to her mom and her dad, and she had her hands raised. Right, and she was little at this point. She's still little, but she was young at this point. It was so sweet. And when, when I talked to her and her parents afterwards, she mentioned 
that she did it because Christina did it. Right? Rose was young. She did not completely understand yet. Right? Right? This is, this is why who we spend time with matters. Now, you parents, you, you can dissect that in a million different ways about your, your teenagers, especially, right? And your kids' friends. But who we spend time with, how we as disciples spend time with God, it matters. Right? Rose was able to see Christina and her parents worship, to go to the foot of the cross themselves. And they raised their hands, and so she thought, okay, then I can worship God in this way. I can, I can lift my open hands up to him, but God, who cares for me? Right? And even take the, the step to do it herself. She, she understands that she was changed. Her heart was changed. Listen, when we spend time with Jesus, the same thing will happen to us, Father Church. Our minds will be changed. Our actions will change. But most importantly, our hearts will change. Right? The, the, the second story of Rose is a little bit more recent. Rose has invited all of her friends to youth group that meets on the second Sundays of the month. Right? The, the first week, there were like two of her friends. And, and then they go back to their activities, their extracurriculars, and, and they talk about the fun and the things that they're learning and, and the change that's happening. And I always notice that because the next time that they, we get, they gather, she brings even more friends. Right? She, she's living out that change of what God is doing. You see, look, look at it like this. The heart of the matter is that to God, the heart is the thing that matters most. Right? Because here's the truth about rules. Rules measure actions. Was this action right or, or was this action wrong? Just check yes or check no. But when we look at the heart, we're measuring motives. We can talk about the beginning, we're measuring the motivation. You see, Jesus doesn't want us to kill anyone. That is bad, right? And I can't just go and murder Christina when she makes me mad, right? But that's an action. Right? If we destroy someone's life by gossiping about them, well, that is not against the law. We didn't break any rules. But I don't know about you, but I don't think I could look at the person in the eye and say, hey, well, I followed the rules. I checked the right box. I'm still a good person because I didn't kill you. I, I just gossiped about you. I, I just told lies about you. Or even truth, but I, I did it with with. Uh, malicious attempt. You see, I didn't kill you. I just cast it. Yeah, that's not how it works, right? Right? And to God, what really matters is our heart. What really matters is our motives. Right? And this is, this is something that we have to teach our children. I remember a time, probably several times, actually, when I was traveling with my family to see my grandparents, because we never went on vacation. <laughs> Right? And so we're trying to see my grandparents, but on the way there, I was sitting in the back seat, and my sister, she yelled at me to stop touching her. Right? You all been there. And so what's the first thing that I do as the cute, lovable, the greatest little brother in the history of the world, what did I do that all little brothers do? Yeah, I stuck my finger around. I got as close as I could to her face, to her body, or whatever, and I couldn't 
as close as I could, and I just kind of hovered there, and she would scream, stop it! You're annoying me! Quit it! And what would I say? I'm not touching you. Right, this is what Jesus is talking about. Right, he, he doesn't want us walking around saying, hey, I'm not touching you. Right? Are you young guys listening? <laughs> I'm not touching you when, when we're just barely following the rule. It's motivation. It's what the heart is. He wants us, he wants us to go in the other direction like he did. He doesn't want us just to keep the letter of the law. He wants us to know the law, to know him. And so well. He wants us to know us so well that we can keep the spirit of the law just as we are forging our life on God in every day. And he goes on to explain this better by bringing up six laws that Jesus people, during this time, Jesus people even now, disciples, would know. And the heart of each law, what it really is, what our motive should be. Just, I'm going to run through them real quick, but I'm not going to read them. All right, don't worry. All right? But the first one, you can look at it there in Matthew. It says, Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. When I say, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, we all know that murder is wrong. It is in basically every moral code of law that has ever existed, right? <laughs> but that's just the action. Jesus gets to the motive. And what does he say the motive is? Anger. So he's calling us to deal with our anger, and if we don't, things like insults and slander will come out of our mouths. And church, if we're honest, most people's lives have been ruined by, by gossip. Right? More people's lives have been ruined by gossip and slander than by murder. So Jesus says, check your motives before it gets to that level. Check your motives. Right? Then he gives us another example. He says, uh, Jesus says, you have heard that it said, shall, you shall not commit adultery. But I say, everyone who has looked at a woman with lust has committed adultery. I think as a, as a culture, we would all agree, for the most part, that adultery is wrong. Right? However, somewhere along the way, we have started to think that lust is just the way of life. <laughs> Jesus says no. Right? He, he calls us to deal with our motives for adultery, which is what? Lust. Right? And let's be clear here. Lust is just a strong, powerful desire. It can be for another person's body. It can be for another person's relationship or another person's love. You might be saying, well, I've never wanted to be with another person because they're just so hot. That's not my motivation. So I'm good. I've checked the box. But have you ever said, man, I wish I could be married to someone like that? Because they treat their wife so kindly, or something like that. Right? And this is lust all the same. Right? And Jesus says, not enough. Right? It's not just about the act of adultery, it's about your motivation, about the lust. Right? And he goes on and he said, we should amputate whatever, this is how serious he takes it. We should amputate whatever live is making us lust. That's crazy. Right, but, but it shows the seriousness that Jesus is talking about when he talks about this, and we should take it just as seriously. Mark Moore in his, his book, Quarter 52, which is a great book that's out there, and listen, I say this all the time about that book. 
Um, it's up there on the, at the info center. If you read 452, you know, like 90% of like the doctrine, the, like the core scriptures that, that kind of develop a Christian doctrine. Right? So one scripture a week, one section of scripture a week, 452, it's out there. And in there, he's talking just about this section of scripture. That's one of the sections of scriptures. And he says this when he gets to this point. He says, our sex-saturated society has been fueled by lust. We're experiencing unprecedented levels of sexual dysfunction. Never has Jesus' call to personal purity, it starts with us in every area of life, right? Never has Jesus' call to personal purity been more relevant or critical. This isn't an issue of protecting prudish puritism. It is an issue of family health, mental health, human decency, and even societal stability. Jesus is saying, check your motives before you mess up more than just your marriages. The next one is tricky one. All right, Jesus says, you can read there in Matthew 5, Jesus says, you have heard it said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say that everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. Now this verse has been used by some in the church to cause more pain. It has made people stay in unsafe situations with unsafe people who do not know Jesus. Remember, these points are not just for us to have a stronger law. They are for us to what? Behave more like Jesus. <laughs> right? right? So, so what does it look like in this context? So in Jewish law, divorce was perfectly legal and for almost any reason but by men only. Right, so, so it was encouraged by the law that these men would give their wives a certificate of divorce so that they could, the wife could move on with their lives. Right, there's just this little hiccup with this idea. Women during that time period really couldn't move on with their lives. They had no way of making an income at this particular time. If they did, they would have had to have their roots sown long ago before this moment in their life. If they were away from their family, if they had married and moved away from their family, they would have often no place to live. They would have had children that they had no way of taking care of them. But sure, they had a certificate of divorce in their pocket. So maybe, just maybe, they would find a man willing to look over the fact that this woman had already been married and maybe had our children and maybe not really able to provide for the children anymore, right? You see what Jesus is getting here. What is your motive for divorce? What is your motive for providing that certificate? Is it to wipe your hands clean of a family, a fresh start? Not taking responsibility? Is it to say, I, I don't so, I don't want, I, I suppose, to do uh, now uh, what, what's kind of challenging me? Like, I don't want to step into the responsibility. I don't want to fight through issues. Like, you know, fight for the, the reconciliation. Right, Jesus is saying divorce is no better than adultery because it leaves families broken with little hope for the future. So you say, check your motives. What's the reason, right? Motives before you get there. And then the fourth one, he says, Jesus says, you've heard it said that you should not swear falsely. But I say, do not take an oath at all. This one is a great one to look closer at our hearts. It kind of starts to take it a little bit deeper. 
Oaths really are just an attempt to make a distinction between situations that require honesty and those that do not. And there's no such difference. Right? If we're forging our life on God, right? Jesus is saying, if you know me, if your heart is really changed by me, you don't need to make an oath. You just tell the truth. Right? We can quote Jesus' brother James here, and we can say what he says in James chapter 5, verse 12. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. And then Jesus said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now this is a, this is a powerful statement. This is a, a, a true mic trap because we read this and we think, Jesus, man, you're just a wimp. We're going to be a wuss. What a horrible way to overcome an enemy. But with this method, turning the other cheek really does it not only reveal your motives, our motives, but it also reveals the motives of the one who is harming us. Let me explain. If you look at verse 41 there, it says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Right, this is a reference to the Roman imperial force who had the legal right during this time to force locals wherever they were marching through to carry their bags for one mile. Right, it was called conscription. Jesus isn't saying to be a doormat, just do whatever these guys make you do. No, he's saying go the extra mile because when you do, you show that uh, to the soldiers, you, you show the soldiers' intent was not really to get support. But it was to exercise a dominion over you, uh, to exercise and to enslave you, to, to just push you down. Right? It would, it would just check, if we would just check our motive for retaliation and turn it into a motive for revealing true and go the extra mile, when then, well, then we revealed the true motives of those who would harm us. We understand where it's coming from. Right? We show our motive of the truth winning out in the end. Right? And we reveal the true motives of those who would fight against us. And then finally, here, just to end, it says, Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, this is probably the most outrageous of Jesus' commands here that we're just using as an example that he's using. But please don't miss this, especially in today's climate. Jesus said this in where? The Middle East. Right? Jesus, Jesus said this in a time like our own where terrorism was prevalent. And Jesus said this in a time where he knew he would one day be killed because of his radical religious belief because of the way that he lived his life and who he forged his life on. Right? Jesus said to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. And he wasn't asking anything of us that he wasn't willing to do himself. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, it says, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his death of his son. And that takes us back to what we talked about last week. Right? The Beatitudes. Right? Blessed. Right? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. To be a son of someone means that you reflect that person's character, you re reflect that person's motives. 
So when we love our enemies, we reflect the radical grace that our Father showed us in sending His Son to the cross in our stead. When we pray for our enemies, we reflect His Son on the cross, crying, Father, Father, forgive them. When we act as peacemakers in a world hell-bent on war, we reflect the motives of our, our Father to ultimately one day bring peace in this world. Now, I, I think we all have seen a lot of answers being offered for what is going on over in the Middle East. There have been a, a lot of cries on social media for this and that and the other. Right, don't worry, I'm not getting into them. It's 11.35. One, because I'm not an expert in the political situation there, right? And I'm not an expert in, in public policy or diplomacy. And to be honest, I, I don't know the motives of people who are offering up these solutions. But there is one man who I have absolutely no doubt about his motives, and that is Jesus. And when he calls for his people, his disciples, people who are forging their life on him to reflect him in being peacemakers, and a people who pray for our enemies, well, I think that's what I'm going to do. And don't get me wrong, listen, there's a distinction here. Right there, there this is not a do-nothing stance. We have no greater power than the power found in asking our Savior for justice. Right? Because he is the judge. And mercy, because he's the author of grace, for our enemies. So you think, wait, how can we do that? How can we pray for justice and mercy? Well, I don't have to figure it out. God is. But to be clear, I do not think there's a distinction to be found in praying for justice to be done, right? Hamas is evil and loving my enemy. Right? Praying for God to say, hey, justice be done. Right? And until that moment of justice, heart, I pray for their heart. Help them to seek you. Help them to return the captives. Help them to, to put down the rifles. Let there be peace. Right, this, this is what Jesus' whole life was for. He came here to love his enemies, us. Us. And to serve as the payment for the penalty of our sins. To be the thing that justifies us to God, to give us mercy. The only hope we have is Jesus. And so we should pray for our enemies to know Jesus. We should pray for God's judgment and his mercy. So for all of those who come to me over the last week asking me what to do, here's my answer, let's check our motives and be like Jesus. Right? In everything that we say, we will magnify the mercy of God by praying for our enemies to be saved and reconciled to God. And the personal level, we will be willing to suffer for their everlasting good, and we'll, we'll give them food and drink, we'll put away malicious hatred and private vengeance and at the public level, will we also magnify the justice of God by, by praying and working for justice to be done on earth? Think of it, right? I mean, right? this should be our call to action in everything we do. Check our motives and be like, Jesus, is that, the thing, is that thing that you're posting on social media, whatever it is, to magnify God's glory and justice, or is it to get more likes and proof? 
prove somebody wrong. Is that comment that he made to someone in the hallway at work that meant to magnify God's glory and justice, or is it just to fit in with co-workers and tear someone else down before you get torn down? Is that thing that you're watching online, online meant to magnify God's glory and justice, or is it to serve your lustful desires instead of fighting with your spouse? And whatever it is, check our motives and be like Jesus. Jesus wasn't asking us to achieve the impossible. He was just making and asking us to check our motives and be more like him. And listen, as the band comes up, I want to end today by telling you the story of a man who did just that. In the 1500 years, I'm sorry, in the 1500s, there was a Protestant reformer in England by the name of Hugh Latimer. Right? He was known as a great preacher of his day, and he had many opportunities to preach. And one of his opportunities was to preach in front of King Henry VIII of England. And he thought about this great responsibility to bring a message before the king. And he kept going back and forth on what he should say. And as he was worried because this message that God laid on his heart was not the message that the king was going to want to hear. And so he contemplated this, and he said he heard a voice that said this. It said, Vladimir, remember, you are preaching before King Henry VIII, who, if he wills, can take away your life. And he was like, well, that was exactly the message I needed to hear. <laughs> Then he began to contemplate this even more, and he heard another voice. He said, they said this. He wrote this in his journals. He said, Let me remember, you are preaching for the King of Kings. Do not displease him. What is our motive? Let, let him to check his motivation. Was he preaching this sermon to make himself look good, to gain, to gain uh, earthly acclaim in the king's court, and, and, and you know, to be popular? Or was he preaching the sermon to magnify the glory and the justice and mercy of God? What would it be? The question is, what will it be for all of us? You know, there's, there's a lot going on, right? And, and like I said, I, I only know two things that Jesus asks me to do. That's to pray. Right? And so that's what I want to do right now. I'm calling it out. You can play it. Sounds good. <laughs> I just want to pray. Right? We, we, you know, there's, there's some prayer requests that we posted on, online, like a prayer bag. And I'm just going to kind of read some of these, and, and we'll take a moment, we'll pray. Then we'll talk about the other thing that causes us to do. So if you want to just bow your heads with me. Lord, our God, the great I am, that is who you are. You're above all, you're through all, you're in all, you're over all. You're the great I am. And Lord, first and foremost, before we say anything else, Lord, we want to say to you, we're thankful that we're not the great I am, but that we know who the great I am is. And that's you. Oh, Lord. 
Lord, right now we ask for both justice and mercy. We know that that's difficult for us to understand, to, to, to contemplate, Lord, to figure out. And Lord, we know says, you're the great I am, you're above all, and through all, and in all, and over all, Lord, and oh, Lord. And so we ask that you be with the situation in the Gaza Strip, that you be with, with uh, the, the, the Jewish people, that you be with the Palestinian people, Lord, that if, if, if there's hostages being held, Lord, that you, you lead uh, not just the, 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 the soldiers to those places, Lord, but you you do what you can only do, and you make Hamas lay down their arms and seek you and your forgiveness. And to let these hostages go. Lord, we ask that, that, that uh, who you are is that no, Lord. We know that there's there's about 50,000 Christians that are living in that area, Lord. 50,000 of our brothers and sisters in that area, both from Jewish descent and from from Palestinian descent, Lord, and Lord, we know that if, there, if, if peace is going to happen, it's going to start with that, and with us on our knees, praying to you, the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God, we forge our life by. And so we ask for safety, we ask for, for, for peace. We also ask, Lord, if, if there isn't and willingness to lay down arms that there's there's justice. That there's wisdom and temperance and decisions made by all political groups that are involved, that there, there's wisdom and that there's temperance in, in military decisions, Lord. Lord, that who you are is known, Lord, and, and if that's denied, Lord, just as you told your disciples, if, if they go into villages and they preach your word, Lord, as the church was starting in the book of Acts, Lord, they go into, into these villages and they, you preach, and they, they teach your grace and your truth, and they deny it, Lord, that they are to go out and to dust the dust off their Satan holes. If that's the case, Lord, Providence be known. A supernatural wisdom that only you can provide, a vision of how to do things, how to how they interact, how to keep people safe. We're innocent. Mosa. To Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lament is another thing. There's a weird section of scripture. In Psalms 137, I always thought, why did God leave that in the canon of Scripture? You know, you're like, God, do you have around? Right? Let me read it to you. It says, by the waters of Babylon, right, this first little context, it's about uh, like 530-something B.C. Um, the Babylonians are held, or the, the Israelites are held captive. Right? They've been taken Israel, Jerusalem is laid in ruins. It's destroyed, and they're sitting by the river. And then by the waters of Babylon, they, they sat and they wept. When we remember Zion, on the willows, they hung up our lyres. For there 
our captors recorded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth say, sing us the songs of Zion. Then he says, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Then he said, right, then they say, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites in the day of Jerusalem, how they, they, they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundation, till daughter of Babylon doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall be, be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. And you read that, you think, well, obviously, they're angry. <laughs> they're calling for bad things. They're, they're calling for revenge. And you know that that's not what's, what happens later on in their history. And you got to think, well, that's the difference between praying doing. Because that's what the Psalms is, right? It's a prayer book. And in other places in the book of Psalms, like Psalms um, 130, uh, 130 verse 1, it says, Oh God, hear our depths, I cry to you, O Lord. That's what they're doing. They're crying out. Now they're crying out in anger, in anguish, and, and for just equally destructive things. But, but it keeps going because because Psalms is saying praying and doing, you're listening to God, you're telling God how you're feeling, and He starts to do a work in you. Because in, in Psalms 46, you can you can read this too. This is this is where it, where He says this. God, you're God, God, the God that we forge our life on. God is our refuge and strength. He's a very present help in trouble. Verse 2. Therefore, we're not. Therefore, we will not fear. And that first psalm is written with fear. They're learning. Therefore, we will not fear, though, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and fall, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall be moved. God will help her when morning dawns, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of our God. How he has brought desolation on the earth. Right? There's going to be where we said communion, right? Jesus is coming back someday. We don't know when. But he's going to come. He's going to make things right. He makes the war cease. And the earth, the end of the earth, he breaks the bow and the shares the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still, he says, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So we, we pray, and when we lament, we lament, just like that, it's rooted in who God is. It ends with his hope. It ends with the fact that he is 
the great I am. There's a, there's a song that says, it is well with my soul. Don't worry, you guys are going to practice. But if you'll just stand, and as we conclude today, you know, this is a hymn that, that, that talks about this, this, this struggle, justice and mercy. This, this, this praying, but then also this, 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 this lament where it's like, ah, oh, God, evil, that was evil, it was hard. It is well. 